Welcome to The Voice of Retail. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc. This podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada. In this episode, I'm in Dallas, Texas, welcoming back to the podcast top retail strategist, best-selling author, and my remarkable retail podcast co-host, Steve Dennis. We're back on the mic together talking about the launch of the second edition of his best-selling book, Remarkable Retail, and we cover a lot of ground reviewing the core principles of the first book, what has changed for the second edition written in the COVID era, and the big trends and six key forces in the post-COVID retail world you need to know to survive and thrive. COVID has uh, reset the playing field and, and introduced some new dynamics. So part of what I'm doing in the second edition is to update the context, the starting point, so to speak, uh, because there was so much change. The other thing, too, which I think really made me feel like I had to update the book was part of what I was getting at, just to go to go back to kind of what I had in my mind when I was writing the first book was, as I said, you know, these retailers that really need to transform. So let's listen in now to my remarkable interview with Steve Dennis. Steve, welcome back to the Voice of Retail podcast. How are you doing, my friend? I am well. Thanks for having me back. Well, you're certainly a familiar voice. Uh, We speak more than once a week, uh, thanks to the Remarkable Retail podcast that we co-host. What a great great experience I have with you on that. And this is, I was trying to think, our last feature interview was January at the NRF in 2019. And and you were kind enough to also join me on a a panel I had for Black Friday. So it's been a while. It's been a while. So it's great to catch up. Thanks for coming on board. You bet. Yeah, a a lot's happened since then. I believe. <laughs> Yo, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, listen, as I said, you've been on the podcast a couple of times. And, uh, but just in case uh, some of the listeners may not know uh, of you or about you, why don't we start there? Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what you do. Well, so yeah, I'm Steve Dennis. I am a longtime retail executive. I've spent virtually all my career in retail. I did some big uh, corporate consulting and a little bit of time in the food business, but really since the early 90s, I've been working um, pretty much exclusively in the retail industry. The first 15 years or so of my career was on the operating side, way back when at Sears, where I held a bunch of different Mm -hmm. roles, and then at the Neiman Marcus Group, where I was the chief strategy officer and head of multi-channel marketing and a few other things. And then for the last 10, 11 years, I've been doing I kind of think of myself as a retail renaissance man now because I do so many (laughs) different fascinating things. Uh, But seriously, I do uh, strategy consulting. I do keynote speaking. uh, I write for Forbes. Uh, I've written uh, this book we'll probably talk about, I imagine. And, uh, of course, the highlight of my life and career has been being co-host with you on the Remarkable Retail Podcast. It is a pile of fun. I really, I really do enjoy our time together. So, you know, the highlight of my weeks because it, we have guests on. It's similar to different thing. You and I get to chat a bit of different format. So, anyway, if anyone's uh, hasn't checked that out, be sure, uh, be sure and check that one out on your usual podcast platforms. So, all right. Well, you mentioned it. You alluded to it. Let's get to the big news. You've got a second edition of your best-selling book, Remarkable Retail, coming out uh, right now. We're recording in in early April. It comes out. Uh, you can pre-order it now if you're listening to this. Or it's available on shelves on the 13th, I think, April 13th? Yeah, the 13th in most markets. In the UK and a couple other markets, it's more. Uh, it's a couple of weeks later. But for the most part, yeah, later. April 13th is the release date. You know, before we talk about the second edition, again, not assuming everyone who's listening has read the book, <laughs> let's talk about the first book. So in it, you kind of, you, you look at core principles and observations and you, and you set forward a framework. 
And let's talk, let's start there. Tell us about the first book and then uh, tell us about the, particularly the eight essentials framework, because that really sets the tone for, I think, a lot of the, the way you think and approach uh, strategic uh, opportunities and risks and, and uh, evaluations. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, so when I think about who the, the first book was for, it's really for almost anybody in the retail industry. Um, you know, whether it's retailers or people working with retailers, serving retailers, investing in, in retail, it's a pretty broad strategy book, but who it's for the most, you know, the, like the group of people I had in my head as I was writing it was really those brands that need to significantly transform for a new age. And I would say the premise of the book, the main premise of the book is really this idea that even very good is no longer good enough because what digital disruption broadly and e-commerce did in particular was make uh, product availability, access, information, pricing, you know, all those things became very much abundant and you really couldn't leverage the historical advantages of retail, which, you know, might be exclusive product or a really great location or being the only game in town and, and all those kinds of things. So that's really driven, the need for retailers to be more remarkable, to really distinguish themselves in a very powerful way. Because if you're essentially selling what amounts to um, a commodity and everything's about convenience and low price, you're probably going to get beaten by the internet uh, nine times out of 10. The second premise I would say, which gets a little bit to why I did the second edition, the second premise was that I think most retailers that are struggling or edging toward a period where they might be struggling really underestimate the degree of change or transformation, whatever you want to call it, that is required and how quickly it needs to be done. So I really wanted to both encourage folks to think more radically about what they needed to do as well as hurry, basically. And, and so, the, so you know, the first part of the book kind of, you know, sets out that premise, talks about some of the key trends, dynamics that are going on that I think are important to understand before you start thinking about what it means to be, to initiate the journey to Remarkable. And then the second part's got this eight essentials framework, which hopefully provides a good roadmap or way of thinking about um, your business and, and where you need um, to improve, to close competitive gaps or distinguish yourself further. Right. I mean, what I, what I loved about the, um, you know, as, as I thought about Remarkable Retail, what I loved is your jumping off point, even for the naming of the book. And in other words, you took a page out of uh, your, your friend and colleague, Seth Godin's idea about, will people remark upon you? In other words, is your brand worthy enough to be shared uh, amongst each other? Just say, hey, I had a great experience at, or does it just fall away and just become this massive okayness, mm -hmm. which I guess 20, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you could get away with because there's certainly less internet and less availability. And a lot of these things, you know, you could just, you could just get through, you could get by, but th those days are, are gone. And if you're not doing any of those, and then we broke down together on the remarkable retail podcast season one, the, the eight essentials. So we don't need to go into them in any depth, but actually I'd encourage anybody who wants to delve in. That's a great resource, but tell me of the eight essentials, uh, there are some that we would call table stakes. In other words, everybody's got to do them. Right. And you'll probably get to parity with others who are doing similar things. But there's a couple that stand out and stood out in my mind that are really differentiators. Like, if you got to do all these, but you really got to nail these. And if you nail these, it could move you 
farther and faster along this this path of being remarkable. What 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 are those two that you would highlight, or or that you thought of as as those real those real drivers, those real difference makers? Yeah, so they're number seven and number eight, and actually they tie back. I hadn't actually thought about it until this exact moment how they they tied what I just said earlier. <laughs> so number seven, memorable, um, really ties to in some respects, this need to be remarkable. You know, what you're saying about the point that Seth made, and I would really encourage people to go back and listen to his TED Talk, which I think was from 2004 maybe, and um, read his book Purple Cow, which was 2003 perhaps. But it was this idea that in an ever noisier world where you have lots of choice, that, you know, you've got to do something to stand out. You know, his his way of talking about it was to be the purple cow amidst all the, you know, the herd of rather average brown cows. And I think memorable is the one that that gets to that. You know, what do you do? How do you do something that is intensely customer relevant, very unique, really tied to your brand, uh, but has a wow factor or a series of wow factors that cause you to really be uh, engaged with that brand in a powerful way, you know, very loyal, mm. but but as you just mentioned, to literally talk about it, uh, because this, the, what Seth, you know, really talked about was this idea that first of all, if you, if you can't break through the noise and the clutter, you know, you basically are ignored. And if you are ignored, eventually you become irrelevant. Uh, but the flip side of that is if you have a story that, that people want, that you want to share and that people are compelled to share, then that's the best marketing. And that's the thing that really helps brands go to that, that next level. So, so that's memorable. And number eight is radical. And radical, uh, you know, what I often say is adopting a culture of experimentation, becoming fundamentally more agile, being willing to make mistakes, but pivot quickly, et cetera. That's, first of all, just what I think is required uh, and has been required for a while in today's uh, day and age. But that's one of the ways you get to be remarkable if you aren't. And building that habit of innovation is the way um, that you stay remarkable. So... So it's an element, um, you know, going back to what I said, the second premise was, you know, you're going to have to change more than you probably think you do, and you're going to have to change more quickly. And I think building that culture of experimentation and that innovation muscle is is really the, the heart of what you need to do to differentiate yourself. And what I like about the model is it grounds some pretty big thinking strategic thoughts that we all have to make about running the business in that simple, will people tell their friends about us. Like it's, it's, it's like a litmus test or a touchstone, you know, of course, behind that is tremendous amount of work and innovation and thought, but that ultimately boils down to, will people talk about us or will we just be forgotten? Like, you know, that, that old, like people don't speak ill of us. They don't just don't, they just don't speak of us at all, right, right. which is almost worse. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Let's, let's fast forward. So the, your book, your first book, first edition uh, came out in, um, in and around February of twenty. 19, which meant you wrote it a little bit earlier now. So a bit has happened since then, <laughs> the COVID era. Uh, is that what kind of uh, got you to start thinking about a second edition? And, and tell us about the, the second edition. What's different from the first one? Well, actually, just a quick correct, correction. It came out almost exactly a year ago today. But it oh, was, okay. it was um, so it came out just really as the world was going into COVID lockdown. Wow, wow. Yeah. And um, But I finished writing it several months before. So COVID was certainly not... Right. Not on the mind. So um, the book, the book did actually quite well, well reviewed, won some awards. Uh, so it wasn't a matter of um, not proud of the first edition of the mm-hmm. book, but clearly COVID has uh, reset the playing field and, and introduced some new dynamics. So part of what I'm doing in the second edition is to, um, you know, update the context, the starting point, 
so to speak, uh, because there was so much change. The other thing too, which I think really made me feel like I had to update the book was part of what I was getting at just to go to go back to kind of what I had in my mind when I was writing the first book was, as I said, you know, these retailers that really need to transform. I would say generally, and retail's a big industry and, you know, companies sit in all sorts of different competitive situations. But I would say if I was just thinking about one set of retailers that I was trying to motivate or or people that are looking at the industry, help them understand it, it was, okay, you've got to make all these changes, but maybe you have two, three, four years to do it. You know, like if they were already dead, there's no point in writing the book, no matter how good the advice is, like it's not going to (laughs) matter, right? right? So if you can't practically apply it, then it's not very useful book. So I kind of had that idea in my mind. Well, COVID really accelerated that, say, three to four year time frame to three to four months, maybe. So a lot of um, retailers that were in trouble, you know, have gone bankrupt or have closed a ton of stores or, you know, really hanging on the edge at this point and are kind of dead brands walking as I talk about in the book. Um, So I really had to kind of bring that all forward and kind of reset the starting point, um, and then, you know, also just deal with some of the particular things that, that came out of COVID. Did it change, uh, did it being COVID change any of your conclusions or your, your insights, particularly from your thinking that went into the first edition? It didn't really, uh, there's an aspect, and I think we may have talked about this on the remarkable retail podcast, there was an aspect where I was like, well, you know, I told you so, like, you know, if you were vulnerable and, you know, that's not, other than like beating my chest about that. That's like, that's not helpful. Right. So I had actually, I think validated uh, for me, a lot of the points that I've been making over the years, not just in the book, but in consulting and speaking the two things I think that were in there, but I think really got amplified were that the need to be agile. I think that's been important. Lots of people have talked Mm -hmm. about um, agile business models and so forth. Um, But I think it just really, really, emphasize the point that the world is just fundamentally more dynamic. And if you didn't believe it before, then COVID really taught you that. And I think the other part is that the, and again, you know, I talk about this in the first edition, but the, the pace of change is accelerating. And one of my favorite quotes is, um, which was from Carlos Castaneda's book, uh, journey to Ixlan is the problem. The problem is you think you have time, right? I mean, I think a lot of retailers, just think like, okay, well, I don't, I don't have to do this until it's convenient or until we study it more. And again, I make that point in the first edition, but in the second edition, I think I hit much harder on that. And again, I think if people don't get that by virtue of what happened with COVID, then I don't know what to say about it at this point. Yeah, right. Um, well, let's talk about uh, current events a little bit. Uh, there was recently in the news of company said, yeah, we think there's going to be 80,000 stores closed. And it's funny, Brendan, what's your our guest on uh, Remarkable Retail? So that's just clickbait. It's just nonsense. But ultimately, I think there will be, you know, store closures. Is it, is it, is that, do you see that as the inevitable impact of the COVID year? I mean, there's winners or losers for no fault of their own good landlord, bad landlord. They sell apparel. You know, some things are out of, a little out of your control. Some things are not. Is it, is store closures the the rise of e-commerce, or is there something else going on if you're if you're closing a lot of stores? Well, with regard to that particular story, I just had a little bit of a Twitter exchange on this. Um, I can't really get my head around what the number 
should look like, but I can tell you the methodology or the assumptions that went into that are, are really faulty. So I'm, I'm willing to say that I don't think there will be anywhere near that number of closures. But the U.S. in particular, but some other markets, has been very, very over-retailed for more than a decade. So a certain amount of this was inevitable, but you know, low interest rates and some other dynamics kind of kept some of these uh, folks afloat. So now, what 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 made it inevitable? Like inevitable, as in there's too many stores uh, and e-commerce takes a bigger piece of the pie, or there's just too many too many doors fighting for the same dollar, which. Well, what, I think what drives it, that inevitability? Well, I think the inevitability had to do with with a, a couple things. One is just the the massive expansion of real estate square footage over a twenty year period relative to spending. It got very very misaligned. And that that by itself has nothing to do with e commerce. The other the other part is that a lot of that space was or is in regional malls you know, which have been falling out of favor for a long period of time. So a harsh reckoning was inevitable. Um, I think that, that COVID has made it happen. Well, and in some ways it hasn't made it happen more quickly because there's been so much government stimulus that I think we've yet to mm-hmm. see it. Uh, but I think that what will happen, you know, late this year, early next year will be pretty dramatic and it will really get um, supply kind of better in line with demand. E-commerce certainly is is a bit of a contributor, but um, mainly in that those brands that are poorly differentiated, you know, going back to the point I made earlier, is if, if yeah. you know, you used to be able to only get certain products from certain physical retailers, like right? that was the whole competitive world. Well, now that you can get products from anywhere and in many cases get the cheapest product and deliver it to your home, those retailers that have physical stores that don't add any real value, they become irrelevant. So from that standpoint, e-commerce has has forced certain types of retailers either out of business or to close more stores. So e-commerce, generally speaking, is a is a contributor to to obliterating certain formats. And then I would say, in general, um, because of the endless aisle and and um, omnichannel retail and so forth, there there are certainly some companies that can do the same amount of business without as many stores or with somewhat smaller stores. So that all adds up to a big contraction in retail space. But what I think UBS gets wrong and what is often wrong in the retail apocalypse narrative is, and you know, you and I have talked about this a million times is the role of stores in supporting an e-commerce business. So lots of these stores will remain because they will be there as brand advertising. They will be there as fulfillment centers uh, return centers, et cetera. So that doesn't mean that, um, I mean, in some cases it will be stores that will get retrofit to that function. In other cases, they may get relocated because as they perform more of a fulfillment role, it might make sense not to be in the same real estate. But right. I think when you need to pay the same rent, if you're, if you're a drop-off right, location right. for returns yeah. online, you don't need to pay high mile, high street rent. Right. But I think the UBS analysis fundamentally misunderstands that there are plenty of retailers that are growing their store footprints to offset some of the closings and that the role of the stores is actually, you know, it's a way too black and white analysis of, well, gee, you know, if you go, if, if e-commerce grows, they're therefore, yeah, you know, if X stores. then Y. Yeah. Which is just, I mean, I, I think it's just obviously wrong. Like I don't even, at this point I like, <laughs> I, I think it's just incredibly, incredibly misguided. 
Uh, let, let's pull on that thread, though, a little bit, because recently there's been some stores for strategic, not financial reasons, who or brands, I should say, uh, that have closed their stores. I'm thinking Disney and even before COVID, Bose, um, Microsoft kind of on the on the on the edge started to start to close their stores. And we also see brands taking advantage on the other end of the spectrum of real estate that's available, rushing to opening or at least planning stores. Who's right in all that? Well, as a general rule, I would say if you are a brand where um, your physical presence is important to kind of um, being the kind of full representation of your brand, um, you know, it's not just about e-commerce transactions, then you're going to need a store strategy. Um so it's it's a little bit mystifying to me with with the Boses and the Disneys and I think Godiva, you know, where where that in store experience seems to be pretty important to uh, acquiring customers, getting more of their share of wallet, marketing the brand in a way that's very different than you can do in digital advertising and those kinds of things. Now that doesn't mean that their particular store strategy was the right one. Or they couldn't um, do with fewer stores, perhaps. But getting completely out of physical retail and thinking you're going to be able to drive your brand and rely on e-commerce, it seems to me like there's not a lot of evidence that that, that works. There's plenty of evidence that when people close stores, their e-commerce business actually gets worse if they are more you know, higher-end differentiated products. Well, and, and some of them baffle me a little bit, like the Bose, for example, because it just, I used, I mean, in my local mall, it's a nice mall, and you'd go by the Bose store, and I'd always pop in, and, and I have to say, I often didn't buy that day, but then I'd say, there's some new Bose stuff there, and, and you'd have a listen and stuff, and then, you know, it was at least in your consideration set. You know, I'm going to get, I'm, I, my TV needs a better speaker. I'd think of Bose. Now, I don't even think of Bose anymore. Well, it's, it's, it's certainly reason. not easy to measure the advertising role yeah. of stores. If you get out of retail now, you know, some of these brands have wholesale partners, right? So they haven't necessarily sure. totally gotten out of the ability to see a product. I'm sure in, I can go see Bose at my local Best Buy, for right. example. Right? right. So, I mean, there, you, you have to look at how much distribution do you really need and the economics of that. Yeah. But I absolutely think that this idea that, that you're going to um, not only have top of mind awareness, but you're going to have customers like really fully appreciate why they pay a premium price for a product, like whether we're talking about Bose or Godiva or whatever. And you're going to be able to do that through just being on Best Buy's website in the search function or having to spend and compete for keywords and SEO. Like that's not digital advertising is not really brand building, right? Yeah. And brand preference building. So it, I, it, I think it's a it really kind of misunderstanding of, of dynamics. Yeah. It also makes me sanguine about malls because, you know, I, I'm sure I could go see, and I don't mean to pick on Bose, but they're a pretty good example. I don't, I, you know, I'm sure I could see a great Bose setting up, set up at Best Buy, but that's a destination for me, mm -hmm. like versus I'm walking, you know, in a mall to go to place to place. So the, the impulse, the kind of accidental, the kind of inspiration shopping. Back in the late 90s, there was a Time Magazine article, very famous one, talked about the disintermediation of retail. E-commerce is going to wipe out retail because it wasn't necessary. People would just go buy direct from the brands, and, and retail's core function was was being ameliorated. And, and uh, you know, that didn't come to pass in the past 20 or 25 years. But now with 20% of 
e-commerce, if not more, of core. Is is now that could that now happen? Is that prediction was that prediction too early? Is this is that biggest retail biggest risk to retailers their vendors? Well, I think that's a, that is a risk. Uh, you know, a lot of people. You know, Mark Andreessen, I think in 2013 or whatever, said you know the only retailers that'll be around will be pure play online retailers, mm-hmm. and you know we're not remotely close. You know, even with COVID, <laughs> like we're yeah, not we're at not all, not remotely all. close to that. So, uh, you know, I think that there is a, again, you know, kind of this aside from what we were talking about, like the role of of physical stores in terms of fulfillment and, um, you know, that sort of thing. I think consumers in certain cases really value the in-person experience because they want to, uh, you know, put outfits together or sit on that sofa Mm -hmm. or try to figure out, well, why is this particular thing twice as much money? And, you know, it does it fit me. So there's a whole bunch of reasons where, or circumstances where physical retail adds a lot of value and I think we can certainly see this, like, you know, in the home improvement industry, like hardly, like there's a lot of digitally influenced sales and there's certainly some home delivery and some small items, but, you know, lumber is probably not a great e-commerce business, right? So, I mean, there's just lots of categories where I think brick and mortar will be, you know, not necessarily the way the sale is rung up, but will play a critical role. So e-commerce penetration will will continue I think, you know, again, people quote different numbers, but we're at about 20%. Uh, but, you know, a lot of that 20% is actually stuff that's bought online, but the store is involved in terms of fulfilling it. So yeah. that's a whole other, yeah, yeah. probably separate podcast about that. So um, so e- e-commerce is going to continue its penetration, but I, I don't see us getting to 50%, much less 100% um, anytime soon. And as it comes to the disintermediation, I think, you know, there's a lot of incentives for brands to go direct to consumer. Um, right. Um, Cause it doesn't even have to involve stores. Like we could, we could, this could be not even a store, a physical store discussion. This could be, why would I go to any of the retailers websites to buy when I could go directly to the vendor site? Correct. To buy? Right. Um, and that, and that's a, a legitimate question, but is it, is it as big a risk as people seem to make out or what's your perspective on that? Well, I think when it comes to uh, multi-category, multi-line retailers, whether we're talking about like Dick's Sporting Goods or Neiman Marcus or the Bay or whatever, um, I think, you know, some of that is convenience driven, which is where can I go see this product? So, you know, to your earlier point, sometimes like I'm in the mall and I'm just going to go pop in, right, to check it out. Other times it's a destination and maybe I'm Going out to the yeah, grocery I'm in the store. Bay. I'm, in, and I I'm wanna, in Hudson's Bay, and yeah. I go to Florida Five. I go to Beauty, and then I go upstairs to see what they got in housework. Right. So there's a, there's a convenience dimension that's you know sometimes it's super convenient just to get online and have the box show up at your house, right? But other times you're out sure. doing other things, and it's convenient to just you know walk mm-hmm. down the to the next door or whatever. So I think there's a convenience dimension and immediate gratification dimension, which is important to stores. But I think when it comes to to manufacturers brands. You know, sometimes people want to go to Dick's Sporting Goods because they, and I'm just picking that as an example, because they want to mm-hmm. get some running shoes and socks and some shorts, right? And they're not necessarily super brand specific, right? right. In other cases, it's like, well, I really want Nike stuff and I want to see all the Nike stuff. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and so I go directly to the website or I go to the Nike store. So I think retail is very, very complicated. And a lot of times the problem with some of these broad statements is is you're talking about an entire industry and there's a lot more nuance to it. And what I often say, particularly in my consulting 
world is, you know, averages aren't particularly happy to a given competitor. Like I don't, you know, talking about the growth of online, if you've been in the off price retail business was kind of a non-factor because hardly (laughs) there was very little that was done online. If you're still is in some way in Canada, I mean, you know, you're, you're big players in that, in that aren't online today. You, it's a physical shop. Right. And then the flip side, if you talk about books or music or whatever, like, okay, well that's like 70% yeah, online. Yeah. Right. So, right. so averages aren't, aren't particularly helpful to a given retailer or even a given person in a category thinking about their strategy. So, so what I try to do in the book and just in general and my work is try to say, okay, well let's, let's, let's separate the the facts from the fiction here, maybe dispel some myths, but let's bring this down to the level of strategy and operations for your particular right. situation. Well, speaking of that, it's a great, uh, a great segue to my last couple of questions. One of them is, is you've got this, um, this idea of the six forces it, the your, so your eight essential model is, is in place, but you've now thinking about six forces that the COVID era has, has brought with us and not short term, but these things that people need to be thinking about and you write about, talk about those six forces, um, yeah. what you're thinking. So the first one I call retail bifurcation 2.0. So, uh, you know, I get a lot of crap for this, but talking about retail's great bifurcation, but it's this general idea that the middle of the market has been collapsing, but success has been found at kind of either end of a spectrum, you know, the value convenience dominant assortment spectrum, Amazon, Walmart, Costco, other end of the spectrum, you know, either luxury or more finely focused specialty concepts. So there's this kind of death in the middle. And I think, um, you know, kind of touched on this earlier, I think bifurcation 2.0 is really, really just hammering those retailers that are stuck in the middle. Like there's very little room left to survive. Again, uh, as I said earlier, I think this has been masked in the U.S. largely because of so much stimulus. But I think when the stimulus comes off, uh, we'll see the pace of store closings and bankruptcies in that mediocre middle mm-hmm. really increase. The second one um, is, uh, well, I, you know, I, I danced around calling it the great acceleration because uh, our friend Carl coined that and, you know, I didn't want to have to pay him a royalty. But, uh, but it's an accelerating, accelerating acceleration. And, and right, part, right. partly I say that is because uh, I make the point else, elsewhere in the book that pace of change, whether it's technology or consumer preferences, has been accelerating for years but COVID really just kind of amplified it to a new level. So that's the penetration of e-commerce. That's the adoption of technologies like contactless payment, appointment shopping, um, virtual personal shopping appointments, so that, that sort of stuff. So most most technologies that were already kind of in play or, or nascent got jump-started um, in some cases, you know, one year, in some cases, five years. The, um, the third one is really this reallocation of spending um, some of it driven by what we consider to be essentials. So the most obvious one there is how groceries just exploded at the expense of dining out, uh, mm-hmm. but also a lot of things around the work from home. Uh, you know, whether that's like literally I'm working from home, so I need office supplies, office equipment, or I'm at home a lot that it's time to get that new sofa or get a Peloton or, you know, th- things that are very much driven by how much time we're spending at home. Um, I think this will, you know, I probably at some point going to coin the phrase, the great moderation, because I think we will see a deceleration, but, um, uh, but certainly if you look at the, the fortunes of retailers and, and category spending across the last year or so, we've seen some really big distortions. The fourth one is really this kind of consolidation of power, uh, kind of the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer. And by this, I mean, I think it's both in terms of retailer brands 
that were very well positioned, had a remarkable value proposition, gaining share from either brands that are going out of business or closing a lot of stores. You know, their market share has to go somewhere and tends to go to the stronger players. Same kind of thing on the real estate front, right, with shopping centers closing, malls closing. Again, you know, that business, even 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 if it had been declining over time, you know, that business is going to go elsewhere. So I think we'll see a lot of market share consolidate to the stronger players. And we're also seeing, and we'll see more of it, of these bigger players buying up, um, not necessarily weaker players, but perhaps companies that got into trouble because of too much debt or whatever. And so they can pick up brands, use their strong balance sheet, their cash to pick up brands. Pick up the people too, right? The brands and the people. Yeah. Brands, customer lists, talent, technology, real estate, you name it. There's lots of, lots of plays. So, so I think there's really going to be this kind of, um, contraction or consolidation among the stronger players, broadly speaking. The fifth is the great rewiring. Um, and this is a term I, I took from Rashad Tabakawala, and he talks about how COVID has really just fundamentally changed uh, the way we shop, the way we dine, the way we are educated and work and, and so forth. So, you know, and, and this is the one where I think it's harder to know the degree to which this rewiring will persist. I think the work from home one is the one that's probably the most profound over time. And when you think about that, not only does that dictate what you spend your money on, um, but also, you know, is there more shopping? Yeah, right. Are there more, more people, um, you know, more retail restaurants in the suburbs relative to urban cores, you know, that those sort of things could be pretty, pretty significant. And that's got implications for real estate prices and a whole bunch of other things. And then um, the last one quickly is, um, but it's actually the one that I'm kind of most jazzed about (laughs) is what I'm calling the, um, the hybridization of retail. And again, you know, like a lot of things I talk about in the book, some of these things have been going on for a while and people are just, they've either been accelerated or amplified, or in some cases people are just like waking up to the reality that they didn't see before. But I think um, as we talked about earlier, Retail stores, which are basically designed to be places uh, for people to go and buy things, um, are really serving a more hybrid role. You know, we talked about the marketing role of it. I think that's becoming more obvious. Um, fulfill, fulfillment of e-commerce orders from store stock, curbside pickup, service centers, return centers, you know, all these kinds of things I think will change the nature of a given physical store pretty considerably over time. And I think it will also lead to a different way of deploying your different formats because you may have, you know, if you're a grocery store, you may have the dark stores that are doing just fulfillment. So you can keep stores just being consumer only or ghost kitchens. You know, there's a lot of things going on here where new formats or, or maybe formats that were around are getting reimagined and uh, maybe aggressively rolled out. So, so a lot of hybrid, you know, virtual digital, um, but also I think the, the role of physical retail um, is, is pretty significant. Well, the book is Remarkable Retail, and no matter when you're listening to this, it's available. If you're listening to it in uh, mid-April, it's on. you can get it on pre-order, but soon, no matter where you are in the world, you'll be able to buy it. So uh, I encourage everyone to do it. It's a fantastic book. Um, and uh, we're, in fact, we're going to give a couple away. So uh, thank you, Steve. You've, you've, you've given me a couple, three books to give away. So uh, we'll have a fun uh, promotion that I'll have linked in or connected into the show notes. So uh, check out that. We're going to give a couple of books away just to share the wisdom, uh, so to speak. Uh, Thank you. Very generous. And uh, again, a quick thing. We've got an event coming up. You've got a book launch coming up. I say we because I'm I'm, uh, 
I'm hosting. I have the pleasure of hosting. Talk about that for 30 seconds. That's happening on yeah uh, Tuesday, Tuesday the 13th at uh, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's a uh, one-hour event, uh, which will include myself, uh, surprisingly, and you. Uh, we're also going to have Suchirita <laughs> Kodali, a uh, forester analyst who uh, was kind enough to write the foreword to the second edition, uh, Seth Godin, and several other people. So we'll be talking about the book. We'll be talking about what's next for retail uh, and uh, taking some questions. And so uh, I imagine you might be able to put the link in the show notes. And uh, that I'm also, um, if you follow me on social media at Stephen P. Dennis on Instagram and Twitter, uh, we'll, we'll have that information there as well. That's great. I'll put the, I'll put the link for that. And for the listeners, it's a great opportunity to ask Steve the questions that you might have after listening to this interview. So it's a great, uh, a great opportunity. So Steve, thanks again for joining me on the voice of retail. It's great to hear your voice as always. And I wish you uh, much continued success uh, with the book and the launch of the book. It's already got such great momentum behind it. So congratulations on that. And thanks again for making time to chat. You bet. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning into today's episode of The Voice of Retail. Be sure and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on the latest episodes, industry news, and insights. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a rating and review as it really helps us grow so that we continue to get amazing guests onto the show. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc, president of Emmy LeBlanc Company, Inc. And if you're looking for more content or want to chat, follow me on LinkedIn. Visit my website at melablanc.co. Until next time, stay safe and have a great week.